This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Tonight on 360, the Supreme Court might soon decide an issue that could make criminal charges against the former president simply vanish. So why is he telling the court, hey, not so fast when it comes to taking up the case? Also tonight, was Colorado's Supreme Court right to boot him off the ballot under the 14th Amendment? We're going to ask the voters. Plus, just in time for Christmas, a judge rules that the women Rudy Giuliani defamed with his election lies can start trying to collect that nearly $150 million he owes them right now. Well, good evening. I'm Pamela Brown in for Anderson tonight. And first up, why the former president's legal team today asked the Supreme Court not to bypass an appeals court and quickly take up the question of whether he enjoys legal immunity for his actions as president. A decision you'd think that any defendant facing charges which might be invalidated would want ASAP, except perhaps this defendant who is running for president. We're going to talk in a moment with our legal panel about that and how the Supreme Court should handle last night's unprecedented Colorado Supreme Court ruling that the former president is an insurrectionist and does not belong on the state's primary ballot. President Biden was asked about that today. Trump an insurrectionist, sir? Well, I think certainly they're self-evident. You saw it all. Now, whether the 14th Amendment applies, I'll let the court make that decision. But he certainly supported an insurrection. No question about it. None. Zero. All right. So for more on that and the Trump legal team's ghost law request on the presidential immunity question, I'm joined here by CNN's Jessica Schneider. So, Jessica, what more can you tell us about Team Trump's resistance to getting the immunity case before the Supreme Court as soon as possible? Yeah, a lot of resistance from Trump's legal team today. They really want this appeals process to play out. They do not want the Supreme Court to stay in, in their uh, to step into this. In their filing today, they said the special counsel is seeking to embroil this court in a partisan rush to judgment. And this is all part of the Trump legal team playbook. They want to slow walk this because what they're trying to do is right now this trial is scheduled for March 4th. If they can keep pushing that trial date back, that increases the chance that this trial would start maybe after an election. And of course, if Trump were to actually win re-election, he could ultimately get his DOJ to dismiss these charges here because the lower court here found that Trump was not immune from this criminal prosecution. And even though they lost at that lower court level, they still want this appeals process to play out. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is scheduled to hear the arguments on January 9th. Trump's team wants to keep that in place, because then that would sort of push the Supreme Court hearing this off until later, whereas the special counsel wants this to go immediately to the Supreme Court. A lot before the Supreme Court, before this election, right, dealing with Trump. So on that note, what happens next in the Colorado Supreme Court case that Trump has said he's going to appeal? Yeah, so the next deadline for the Colorado Supreme Court is really January 4th. They said that Trump's name needs to be taken off the ballot, but they paused that ruling until at least January 4th. They say if Trump files an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court by January 4th, their ruling won't go into effect. We've we've heard from sources our team has that Trump's team is going to file an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, probably not this week, likely sometime next week. They will likely do it before January 4th, and that's a crucial date because one day later is when the Colorado Secretary of State has to certify the primary ballot. So because of that tight timing here, it looks like Trump's name will likely be on the primary ballot. And then this challenge as it moves forward, it would really only affect the general election ballot, which if Trump is the nominee, we'd see if his name was actually on the ballot, depending on what the Supreme Court decides to do here. 
You are one busy lady, you and the rest There's of the Justice team. <laughs> Jessica Schneider, thanks, and we'll actually see you later on in the show on yes. another story. Joining us now, former federal prosecutor and Whitewater Independent Counsel Robert Ray, who served as counsel for then-President Trump in his first impeachment trial. Also with us, CNN senior legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Uh, great to see you both. Robert, I want to start with you. You were highly critical of the Colorado Supreme Court decision. You point to the fact that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment doesn't specifically mention the presidency. But the follow-up question is, what would be the logic of the amendment's authors prohibiting insurrectionists from holding virtually every job in the government, civil and military, but not the presidency? How would that make sense? Because the presidency is unique. Um, it is uniquely dealt with in other uh, places in the Constitution. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts has already spoken to the question about whether an officer of the United States is limited um, to just uh, appointed officials as opposed to all officials under uh, our, our United States government. And the answer is it's, it's limited to appointed officials, generally speaking, unless there's some reason to vary from that, which means that if you want to cover, for example, members of Congress, you, uh, the, the Constitution explicitly s says so. And if you want to cover the, the president or the vice president of the United States and other places in the Constitution, you explicitly say so. So, for example, you don't impeach members of con uh, Congress. You can only remove them uh, by operation of either the House or the Senate. Um, that was a case that came before the Supreme Court quite a long time ago. Uh, and it's generally thought that officers, therefore, should be limited uh, only to appointed officials, not elected officials, because the president's an elected official. Generally speaking, um, the default position should be uh, that he's not covered by that language. In any event, the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment doesn't explicitly cover the president right. of the United States. And frankly, I think there's a better reason why the Colorado Supreme Court should have stayed out of this. And that is that the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is not self-executing. And one of the reasons you get into problems involving, well, what should the standard be in determining whether or not the president is, quote, unquote, engaged in insurrection? And what kind of proceeding should that entail? That's all left to Congress. Congress acted in this area in the 1870s and then ultimately it repealed what was a procedure to determine whether or not somebody had supported insurrection by virtue of being a Confederate. And there was a writ that was required to be issued in order to deal with precisely that question. Alternatively, Congress can pass a criminal law, which it has, uh, to indicate that someone engaged in insurrection can be prosecuted, um, convicted, uh, and imprisoned. Um, it's notable here that Jack Smith explicitly declined to bring insurrection charges. That should have been a clue to the Colorado Supreme Court to stay out of this. They chose right, so not to. And I think probably what, what, what should be recognized is that we all ought to be able to agree okay. that it is not a particularly good look to have judges in a 4-3 decision deciding to keep somebody off of an election ballot. That right. should be so for the voters note, to decide, not for judges. What you just brought up uh, about Jack Smith not charging the former president with insurrection. Ellie, I want to bring you in on this. The text of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, does not say that someone needs to be convicted of it, merely that they engaged in it. Um, how do you think the Supreme Court may interpret that language? So I think the Supreme Court is going to take this case, and I think the Supreme Court is going to reverse the Colorado Supreme Court. I halfway agree with Bob. I halfway disagree with Bob. I disagree with him on whether the term a, an officer of the United States 
includes the president. There's sort of linguistic exercises you can do either way, but I think it's worth noting all seven justices didn't have a problem with all officers of the United States, including including the president. And also just logically, if you're going to have a provision in the Constitution that says anyone who engages in insurrection can't serve for future office, it would be bizarre if the highest office was right, exempt that was from my, that. My I question. do agree with yeah. Bob, though. Yeah. Oh, I do agree with Bob that we have a serious due process problem here because the 14th Amendment itself says that Congress, in Section 5, Congress has to pass laws that tell us how this works. Who gets to decide who engaged in insurrection? Is it a court? Is it Congress? Is it a jury? Is it a judge? The only law that's still on the books, as Bob said, that Congress has ever passed is the criminal law, criminalizing insurrection, which specifically says if a person's charged and convicted with this, he's disqualified. That has not happened here. Instead, Colorado tried to sort of take this state level proceeding that's not really made for this type of insurrection determination and force a square peg into a round hole. And I think that violates Donald Trump's due process rights. And I think the U.S. Supreme Court's going to reverse because of that. So, Robert, as you know, in this country, it's every state's prerogative how they run their elections. Why shouldn't state courts have a say in who is qualified to be on the ballot? And then if it's a question that's relevant to every other state, it gets kicked up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is what's happening now. Why is that process objectionable to you? Well, with regard to simple things, I think you're probably right there. You know, the qualifications for office for the presidency of the United States are relatively simple and are set forth in the Constitution. Is the person over 35 years of age? Have they been 14 years a resident of a state? Is the person a natural-born U.S. citizen? That, that, on the natural-born U.S. citizen uh, issue, that's created a few wrinkles along the way. Uh, for example, is John McCain, was he eligible to be president because he was born in the Panama Canal Zone when his father was an admiral serving there? Uh, the answer seemed to be pretty clearly yes. Uh, he's a natural-born U.S. citizen, just as if he had been born actually on, on the territory of the United States. Uh, Ted Cruz, that issue came up. That's a little bit more complicated, but ultimately the thinking was uh, he also qualifies as a natural-born U.S. citizen. Again, on simple things, um, you leave it to the states. They, there, there'll be a gathering consensus. What's a very bad look, I think we can all agree, is if a state Supreme Court in a split decision four to three, which is likely one that could be replicated anywhere else in the country, gets to decide whether somebody is or isn't an insurrectionist and therefore disqualified from the ballot. I think we can all agree that really ought to be something that is a, a thing decided with guidance from Congress where we can get a single answer nationally about what the result should be. Now, ultimately, <laughs> here, it's going to be left to the United States Supreme Court to decide that. I think they will take the case. I think they will decide it. And hopefully, it will be decided on a, a nonpartisan basis or a bipartisan basis in something approaching unanimity. I mean, I'd like to see, I would, I would like to think that this is something that could be decided nine to nothing. All right. Uh, I want to go to another case before the Supreme Court, and that is this uh, case about whether Trump has immunity from when he was president against Jack Smith's case. And, and you saw today that Donald Trump's lawyers asked the Supreme Court not to intervene, at least not now in Jack Smith's quest for a ruling on whether he does have presidential immunity and his actions on and around January 6th. I'm wondering what you think, Ellie, if Trump wasn't running for re-election to the presidency, do you think they'd still be making this case to the Supreme Court to slow down the process? And do you think they were effective in poking holes in, in Jack Smith's argument? Well, I just finished reading Donald Trump's uh, team's brief, and it's quite effective. And here's why, Pam. We have to remember, 
The one who's asking for extraordinary relief here outside the normal channel is Jack Smith. Because ordinarily, when you lose in the district court, as Donald Trump had, 99% of the time, your next move is you appeal to the Intermediate Court of Appeals. Jack Smith's saying, let's skip that and go right to the Supreme Court. And Donald Trump's team identifies a real weakness in Jack Smith's position, which is this. Jack Smith will not say in court or in his briefs that the reason he wants to speed this up is because he wants to try Donald Trump before the election. Instead, what Jack Smith gives us in his brief is a bunch of sort of vague gibberish where he says, well, delay is bad and speed is good and we need speed because it's important because we don't want delay. And Donald Trump's team quite effectively says, that's not a specific reason. They have to give a specific reason. That's just vague. You shouldn't grant it unless they say the specific reason. And I think Trump's team knows full well there's no way on earth Jack Smith will ever acknowledge that it's the election. I think Jack Smith is counting on and hoping the Supreme Court will read between the lines and get the wink wink here. But I think it's a coin toss as to what the Supreme court does with this one yeah they don't they think they're banking on jack smith not admitting that because then it would look political right which would be what jack smith right. would not want robert ray uh thank you ellie honig see you again shortly along with jessica schneider on this other breaking news about rudy giuliani whose financial troubles just got even worse tonight also up next what colorado voters are telling our gary tuckman about the ballot ruling and the newest potential threat from Iceland's still erupting and still dangerous volcano just ahead on 360. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Well, at the top of the program, you heard President Biden weigh in on Colorado's Supreme Court ruling that the former president is an insurrectionist. Before the break, our legal panel had plenty to say. And right now, what a group of Colorado voters make of all of this. Our Gary Tuckman did the asking. This coffee shop in Douglas County, Colorado, goes by the simple name of coffee. And it's here where we have a simple question for customers. Tell me your gut feeling. Do you think it's a good thing the Colorado Supreme Court did that or not a good thing? You know, I'm not the biggest fan of Trump, but I, I don't think people should be taken off the ballot necessarily. This man is a political independent in a very Republican county. 
So here in the county seat of Castle Rock, it's easy to find loyal Trump Republicans who feel the same as this man. What do you think of the Supreme Court decision? I think it's unfair. How come? Government shouldn't get in, get in that position to control votes for certain candidates. But we did find this Democrat who says that's precisely what this court needed to do. I think it's a great decision. Um, I think that when you try to overturn an election, you don't get to run again. You know, we have a 14th Amendment for a reason. Back inside coffee, loyal Trump supporter Tony Clonaris doesn't take this decision seriously. She thinks the Supreme Court taking Trump off the primary ballot is a result of game playing. Why do you think they're playing a game and not doing their job? they're part of the game. And what's that game? Mm, not being honest. But you think that, that Trump has been honest? For the most part, yeah. Her friend concurs, saying that she feels... Outrage. Absolute outrage. That Why were you outraged? They're going to take away our choice based on their personal beliefs, because I, I don't believe they're speaking for the people. But Elle Gray believes the justices are. She's an independent who has voted for Donald Trump, but says she won't be voting for him again if he ends up back on the ballot. I agree with their ruling that he engaged in insurrection, yes. So do you think it was the right thing to do? For my state, yes. Keith Raymond has voted for Donald Trump twice, but says this time around he's supporting Chris Christie. His opinion is more nuanced. It's a, it's a complicated issue, but if the law is the law and the Supreme Court is stating it, we have to abide by it. Doesn't mean I'm a fan of it. Many Coloradans are still digesting the court ruling. The varied opinions in this shop about Donald Trump, symbolic of countless discussions in this state and this country. Kelsey Nistel is a Democrat. I think that what he did was unacceptable for our country, and we should face the consequences for that. Jake Herman is a Republican. I think if he, if if that was a legitimate thing to happen, if he was part of an insurrection, he would have been arrested. He wasn't arrested. All right, Gary Tuckman joins us now from the Colorado Supreme Court in Denver. So, Gary, did any of the Trump supporters you spoke with say that they would actually switch their support to another GOP candidate if Trump's name is not on the ballot? Well, Pam, at least on this day, we did not talk to any fervent Trump supporters who said they would pick a different Republican candidate on primary day, which is March 5th, by the way, if Trump was off the ballot. Instead, what we heard for several of them is that they would write in Trump's name. But under the terms of this decision by the court, a write-in vote for Donald Trump would not count. Pam? All right, Gary Tuckman, thank you so much for that. More now on the politics and the notion which pollster Frank Luntz raised on this program last night, that anything the legal system throws at the former president somehow only makes him stronger. Joining us now, two CNN political commentators, former Illinois Republican congressman and January 6th committee member Adam Kinzinger and Alyssa Farah Griffin, who served as the former president's White House communications director. All right, great to see both. So, Congressman, do you think the Supreme Court should uphold the Colorado ruling? And, and do you think it actually would? Two different questions. It doesn't seem like they're going to from what I'm hearing. They may. I mean, who knows? And I think it's really up to their decision. It's it's funny. I'm like, I keep going back and forth in my opinion on this. And, and I'm like, I guess everybody expects, you know, politicians and former politicians to have a solid opinion. But it's nuanced. You know, on the one hand, I look at it and say, if the 14th Amendment covers him, our committee... And he and to the, one of the guys talking in the in the focus group, the, the former president was arrested for January 6th. Let's be clear. He hasn't been convicted yet. Um, and so I look at that and I go, well, look, we showed that it was an insurrection. I fully believe it was an insurrection. 
And if he violated that, he violated that, and he should be kicked off. At the same time, politically, as a politician now, I do think it's probably not going to hurt him. I don't think it necessarily will help him. It's not going to hurt him, and I frankly would love to see him lose at the ballot box. He's a loser who keeps losing, and I wouldn't mind if he lost one more time. It still remains to be seen uh, whether it will help hurt him. But, you know, Alyssa, the former president frequently tells his supporters that the system is rigged against him, that the justice system is being weaponized against him. Do you expect the Colorado ruling to have much political effect on the primary in the short term other than just maybe energizing Trump supporters even more? I'm not sure it has a huge impact, frankly, on the primary. Those who are with Trump are with him. Those who are opposed to him are opposed to him. And it, certainly, if it were to stay, would be radioactive in a general election. Um, Colorado, 10 electoral votes. It's a state that went for Biden and likely will be in the blue column. And I don't think it has a major impact there. But I'm with Adam on this, that I'm very conflicted. And I think that Republicans are pretty split on this issue. Um, I very much agree that Donald Trump incited an insurrection. I think the Department of Justice will hold him accountable for that. But at the same time, there's a danger here. Many of his supporters wrongly have believed after, after 2020 that the system was taking their votes or was not counting their votes, that our elections were rigged. That was false. This will give them a concrete example that they can point to where they'll say, the system decided to ignore my vote. They decided to throw out a vote that I cast and will frame it as disenfranchisement. So there's some really rocky precedents here. But I want to be clear, this is one person's fault and one person's fault only, Donald Trump's. The bottom line, though, uh, Congressman, is that DOJ, you know, Jack Smith didn't charge Trump with incitement, right? I mean, the, the January 6th committee clearly laid out the evidence to make their case, not DOJ. Does, does that just fuel the critics of this Colorado um, decision to, to say, look, I mean, not he hasn't even been charged with this? Yeah, I mean, it may. I think, look, everybody's going to have their opinions. But one thing, as Alyssa said, that Trump does really well, he is a perpetual, professional, constant victim. I mean, this is the guy that occupied the most powerful position in the world. And he had at one point the Senate and the House with him. And yet he is still was unable to go after this, quote unquote, deep state and this institution that's going after him and everything is good. He's the only one standing between the government and his voters. He's done that well. Honestly, though, I think I think America, maybe not the GOP per se, but America is kind of sick of this victim mentality, this victimhood, this whining, this complaining. And so this will add to that. So while it may not hurt him in the primary the more he whines and complains and belly aches, I do think it's going to make a difference around the edges in the general election, which this is so close that any kind of a difference around the edge uh, could be positive for uh, Joe Biden or if it goes the other way for Donald Trump. Melissa, we saw this move today by Trump's lawyers to stave off for now the Supreme Court intervening in the battle over whether presidential immunity protects him from prosecution in connection with January 6th. Do you believe it's in Trump's interest to drag out some of these legal disputes, whether it's immunity or gag orders or the 14th Amendment, as long as he can, perhaps into the general election season if he's a nominee? Or do you think that that could actually backfire? <laughs> 
Oh, no. I mean, Donald Trump's pure strategy and perhaps the only real legal strategy he has is delay, delay, delay. He wants to see all of these cases, whether it's Fulton County, the, the two Department of Justice investigations. He would like to see them actually go on beyond the election day, the general election. And it's not an impossibility that they would with an appeals process and so on. Um, he is running for president for retribution and to stay out of jail. That's simply it. And he needs to buy as much time as he can in the coming months. And he's going to use every delay tactic that he can in the legal system. Congressman, do you believe the president, the former president, I should say, will actually stand trial in one or more of the federal cases against him before next November? Do you think he's going to be successful running out the clock here? I mean, it really is. A, it's a coin flip. I, I hope he does stand trial because I think it's important for this information that, you know, some of which we were able to get out on the committee, uh, much more to come, particularly also with the uh, classified documents case. Who knows when that's going to end up going? But the American people need to see this. There's a lot of evidence. There's a lot of information that I think the American people deserve to have before them when they go to the ballot and make a vote. Because the president, I mean, the former president has made it very clear, as Alyssa said, he wants to win for vengeance. He said, I am your vengeance. And he wants to win to exonerate himself. He's, he's not talking about the future of this country. He doesn't have great ideas. He's just talking about getting back at his political enemies. And if he wins, he can... Yes, have the Department of Justice simply call off the case. He has the power to do that. Or if he's already been convicted, he can pardon himself. And I, and I have a hard time thinking that he doesn't have the power to pardon himself. And he would do that. And frankly, his supporters would cheer that on. But it would be devastating for self-governance in this country. All right, Evan Penzinger, Alyssa Fair Griffin, thank you so much. And more breaking news now, potentially back-breaking news for Rudy Giuliani tonight, less than a week after a jury awarded two 2020 Georgia election workers nearly $150 million in damages uh, for defaming them and ruining their lives. The judge in that case said the bill is payable immediately, right now. A busy night for CNN's Jessica Schneider, who is back with the details, along with CNN's senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. What more can you tell us about this ruling, Jessica? Yeah, so this is the judge in this case of the defamation case now saying that uh, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, they do not have to wait the typical 30 days to begin going after Rudy Giuliani's assets in other states. Typically, it's a 30-day waiting period, but this judge tonight has issued this 13-page opinion explaining all the reasons why these women don't have to wait to go after that $148 million verdict. We saw the verdict come down on Friday, and today, just a few days later, they've asked this judge, hey, we want to start going after the money immediately because they're probably very worried about what they will actually see from this judgment. We've heard Rudy Giuliani repeatedly say, as lawyers repeatedly say, just how broke he is. He's put at least one of his properties up for sale, his New York apartment. So these women presumably want to get moving fast to try to seize or get the money from some of these assets. The judge tonight giving them the green light to do this very quickly. So what did the judge say then about Giuliani? supposed financial problems. She was very scathing against Giuliani and his lawyers. She talked about a number of things. She said, look, Rudy Giuliani hasn't said here that he won't try to conceal his assets. That's why I want to get things moving more quickly than that 30-day period. She also said that he previously disregarded orders for payment. He owes money to his lawyers that they have repeatedly talked about. They've talked about how broke Rudy Giuliani is, that Rudy Giuliani can't even pay his uh, legal bills. So she cited all of this. And then she said this. She said, 
said such claims of Giuliani's, quote, financial difficulties, no matter how many times repeated uh, publicly, she says it's difficult to square with the fact that Giuliani affords this spokesperson. So she's pointing out numerous ways that Giuliani seems to be able to still spend money, yet in other ways claim that he's flat broke. So she's using those as reasoning for why these women should be able to go after him immediately for this nearly 150 million dollar verdict. So then, Ali, to bring you in, in practical terms, how do Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss go about collecting what they can from Giuliani? As you just heard Jessica note, he's putting his um, apartment in New York up for sale. I mean, could they just take all the proceeds from the sale of that apartment? What, what can they do here? So it's a couple step process, Pam. First of all, the attorneys for the plaintiffs have to identify the assets. They've already said publicly they've been in the process of doing that. Any good plaintiff's lawyers were doing that. Then you essentially attach the assets. It's like putting a lien on it. So for example, if Rudy Giuliani goes to sell that apartment, it will be known to any buyer, hey, there's people who have a claim to this money and then it will prevent Rudy from getting rid of it. And ultimately, Rudy is going to owe Ms. Moss, Ms. Freeman, his lawyers, potentially Dominion and other people who've sued him way more money than he has. What you have to do then is bring the parties together and they have to split it essentially pro rata, proportionally, based on who's, owes, who's owed how much. This ruling is really unusual, Pam, and it shows just how deeply this judge distrusts Rudy Giuliani. She's not willing to give him even the few days of a grace period that's normally given, and I think with very good cause when you read that ruling. All right, Ali Honig, Jessica Schneider, thank you so much. And just ahead, Israel is back at the table for hostage negotiations as families protest that not enough is being done. We're going to have details on Israel's significant new proposal up next. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. 
For the third time this week, a U.N. vote on a resolution to suspend fighting in Gaza and allow in more humanitarian aid was once again delayed. President Biden says U.S. support for the resolution is still unresolved. And this comes with Israel proposing a new hostage deal and Israeli officials facing intensifying pressure to rescue the remaining captives. Axios political and foreign policy reporter Barack Ravid, who is also a CNN analyst, joins us now. So, Barack, what more can you tell us about this offer from Israel and what it entails? Uh, so uh, this offer was proposed uh, during a meeting on Monday in Warsaw with the CIA Director Bill Burns, the Prime Minister of Qatar, uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdulrahman Athani, and uh, the chief of the Mossad spy agency, David Barnea. And Barnea came to this meeting for the first time, I think, with an Israeli proposal to try and relaunch those talks that were basically non-existent since the collapse of the ceasefire. And the main, uh, the two main issues or the two main elements of, of this proposal is first that Israel proposes a one-week pause in the fighting in return for the release of something around 40 hostages that Hamas is holding, mainly the women that remained uh, uh, in captivity and men over the age of 60 and uh, um, hostages that are sick or uh, seriously wounded. And Israel is willing to release uh, uh, Palestinian prisoners who committed more serious crimes than the one it released in the previous deal. So do you know if the fallout from the IDF's accidental killing of three Israeli hostages played any role in Israel's decision to make this offer? No doubt. No doubt. And, you know, there are there's more than one uh, Israeli official uh, who told me that uh, um, the fact that we saw in what, during one week two meetings between the uh, director of Mossad and the Qatari prime minister is not only in order to move towards a deal, but it's also to try and sort of cool down uh, the protests inside Israel by families of hostages and the general public who wants to see the hostages back. So there's no doubt that domestic reasons also led to the fact that Israel for the first time presented such a proposal. Right, and had had they ever had a proposal before that was like this where they were offering a one-week pause? I think the, the, what's different this time is that if, if we look at the previous deal, Israel got 80 hostages out of Gaza. Uh, and in return, it gave one week pause. This time we're looking at uh, 40 hostages and again, one week pause. So basically Hamas gets the same number of uh, uh, days of ceasefire in return for half the number of uh, uh, hostages. And I think that if Hamas will say uh, tomorrow that it wants to go back to the negotiations table, but it wants more days of pause, I'm pretty sure that Israel would be ready to talk about it. You reported that Hamas's position is that Israel must stop its attacks before any hostage negotiations could resume. Is that something Israel has shown any willingness to agree to? I don't think so. And, you know, the director of Mossad, when the prime minister of Qatar told him that this is the uh, Hamas position, so the director of Mossad said, well, that's uh, great. We really agreed. There was only one, two, there's there are only two things we ask in return. First, that Hamas will give up their weapons and second, that they turn in their leadership. So, as you see, it's, it's, it's kind of a non-starter. But the question is whether Hamas will be ready at some point 
to go back to the table. For now, Israel did not get a formal response from uh, Hamas yet for its proposal, uh, and Israeli officials expect that this will happen by the end of the week. We will see if Hamas is willing to move or they're sticking to their positions and unwilling to go back to the table before the war ends. President Biden uh, said today that the U.S. is pushing Israel and Hamas to reach a deal. What do you know about any efforts by the White House here? I, so I think the main thing here is the involvement of CIA Director Bill Burns. He is really involved. It's He's not just there for, you know, just to... Um, um, to say, okay, we sent somebody. He's involved, and I wouldn't be surprised if we will see in the next few days President Biden uh, speaking to the Emir of Qatar, or we will see uh, Secretary Blinken speaking to the Prime Minister of Qatar. By the way, uh, there was a deal today announced between the U.S. and Venezuela on the release of uh, hostages, prisoners, and Qatar was the country that mediated this deal. And I think it matters because it shows again uh, how much the U.S. and Qatar are close when it comes to uh, such sensitive negotiations. And I think it's going to give the Qataris a lot of credit in Washington going forward also when it comes to the situation in Gaza. Yeah, no doubt. Barack Ravid, thank you so much. Up next, the newest threat thank from you. Iceland's volcanic eruption and what a nearby town is going through. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Well, tonight in Iceland, even as the lava flow diminishes, authorities are warning of a new threat from the volcano, which began erupting three days ago. They say new vents could open up, releasing more smoke and dangerous gases. That and other potential dangers mean people who have been evacuated from a nearby fishing village can't return home yet. CNN's Fred Pleiken has the latest. Up close as the earth spews fountains of lava. South Iceland remains in a state of emergency as the volcanic eruption continues. This is as close as the Icelandic authorities are going to allow us to the actual fissure, to where the eruption is happening. I'd say we're a mile, maybe a little less than a mile away from it. Now, things have calmed down a little bit, but at the same time, of course, the danger is still there. The authorities fear that there could be new vents that might open up, pop up, and that more lava could be gushing to the surface and then could be coming to the surface in fountains like we've seen over the past day and a half. So while things have gotten a little bit more muted, certainly the danger is not over. In the early stages of the eruption, a wall of lava spewing hundreds of feet into the air. While it has subsided somewhat, the underground magma tunnel remains active and dangerous. Still dangerous, of course, and the, and the magma that is coming up is around 1,200 degrees hot when it comes to the surface, and it takes a, a long time for the surface to cool down. The area around the eruption zone remains cordoned off, critical infrastructure in danger, the world-famous Blue Lagoon Hot Springs closed. Here's another reason why the situation is so dangerous. You see over there is the volcanic activity, and if we pan over in this direction, over there is a geothermal power plant that's extremely important for the electricity here in this area. The authorities are trying to protect that power plant by building a berm against any lava flows. For the local residents, no respite. We now have this volcanic eruption very close to Grindavik. I think it is it has proven vital that the town was evacuated in November. We have been buying flats for the residents, so now we actually have 70 flats that 
people can move into before Christmas, which is the most people who are in most dire need of housing. Leaving many residents wondering if they will ever see their homes again. And you know, Pamela, the authorities here say they are going to let people go back to their houses for maybe an hour or two starting tomorrow, but they're not going to allow people to stay there. And the main reason for that is they believe that if there is another eruption, that it could happen fast. In fact, they say from the first time that they detected major seismic activity on Monday to that big eruption, they only had about 90 minutes of warning time, certainly not enough time for a large scale evacuation, Pamela. Yeah, certainly. Fred Pleiken, thank you so much. Well, just ahead, the potential dangers of pregnancy in a post-Roe America. An Ohio woman was charged with a crime after having a miscarriage. We're going to have her story up next. So imagine at 21 weeks and five days pregnant, you're told the fetus you're carrying will not survive. That is any expecting mom's worst nightmare. And then you're urged to receive what amounts to an abortion. But eventually you miscarry at your bathroom after days of trying to receive medical care. Well, this is the reality for Brittany Watts, an Ohio woman who has now been charged with felony abuse of a corpse. In Ohio, abortions are legal until fetal viability, which is generally considered to be around 22 to 24 weeks of pregnancy. And now her case is highlighting the extent to which prosecutors can charge a woman whose pregnancy has ended, whether by abortion or miscarriage. CNN's Whitney Wilde has the details, and we want to warn you, some of what you're about to hear is disturbing. After the death of her 22-week-old fetus, Brittany Watts felt distraught heartbroken, empty, according to texts she sent to local television station WJW. A coroner's report and 911 call obtained by CNN detail the days before and after the miscarriage that led to her arrest and felony charge. I had a mother who um, had a delivery at home and came in without the baby. In mid-September, Watts visited St. Joseph Hospital multiple times and was told her water broke and her fetus would not survive. Medical staff recommended Watts be induced into labor, the report says. At first, she declined medical care, but later returned to the hospital intending to give birth. According to a Washington Post interview with Watts' attorney, Watts waited eight hours to give birth as doctors and officials considered whether inducing her would violate Ohio's abortion laws. Watts went home. Two days later, she miscarried into a toilet. Watts returned to the hospital a third time after her miscarriage, where hospital staff called police. It is a very early pregnancy, so if it was born alive, I am certain it is not now alive. Investigators found the fetus still stuck in the toilet at Watts' home. Watts now faces a felony charge for abuse of a corpse. The coroner's report states the fetus died in utero. In a recent hearing, a prosecutor described the case like this. The issue isn't if, how the child died, when the child died. It's the fact that, I, that the baby was put into a toilet. Watts' attorney told CNN in a statement, there is no law in Ohio that requires a mother suffering a miscarriage to bury or cremate those remains. Women miscarry into toilets every day. Bioethicist Katie Watson called the criminal charge absurd. I think this is an example of a woman violating feelings rules. She didn't perform sadness and she didn't perform respect in a way that the prosecutors could recognize. And so they chose to punish her 
with the prosecution. Watts' case has set off heated debate over criminalizing pregnancy outcomes, including miscarriages. This is about misunderstanding miscarriage and how it works. It's about misunderstanding the psychological and psychiatric reactions that some people have during and after a miscarriage. Abortion rights group Ohio Physicians for Reproductive Rights is urging prosecutors to drop the case. The group's co-founder, Dr. Marcella Azevedo, told CNN the risk to other women facing non-viable pregnancies is enormous. The criminalization of her pregnancy outcomes uh, further stigmatizes both um, abortion and pregnancy, um, but it, um, it uh, certainly, um, particularly um, affects communities that are black and brown. Um, and it uh, creates a bigger discrepancy and it doesn't allow them uh, to feel safe. Whitney Wilde joins us now. I just, I still can't get over what that prosecutor um, said and, and, and what you just showed in the story. You know, it's like, you don't get to decide if you're pregnant and when you're going to have a miscarry. When, you know, where did, would he expect that to happen? Um, what more can you tell us about the wording of the Ohio law that's at issue here? Pamela, it's extremely vague, and it really hinges on this word sensibilities. So I can read you the exact language. It says, no person except as authorized by law shall treat a human corpse in a way that would outrage reasonable community sensibilities. Again, as you heard, Brittany Watts' attorney says that there is no law that required her to do anything specific with those fetal remains. We've reached out to the prosecutors in this case. They declined to comment on the substantive facts of the case. They did submit to us a lengthy press release though a lengthy statement that basically just detailed what has happened in this case. Important to note, this case is now with a grand jury. In about uh, one out of five cases there, the grand jury uh, returns uh, no indictment. Uh, that was in the statement from the, Warren, uh, the uh, county prosecutors there. Meanwhile, we also reached out to the hospital, St. Joseph Hospital. They released a very brief statement, did not, again, comment on the details of the Brittany Watts case, but said only out of patient privacy they were declining to comment, uh, and then stressed that uh, care and safety of their patients is their highest concern, Pamela. Whitney Wild, thank you. We'll be right back. The news continues. The source with Caitlin Collins starts now. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. 